Welcome back to Curious Combinations and Everything's Unoriginal Podcast. I'm AF Tanith, and today I'm covering Marianne, Episode 5 and Episode 6. I keep trying to like this show, you guys. I swear, I do. It, it's just not even trying to meet me halfway, though, and I can only take so much before I'm at my limit. There are plenty of details here that aren't bad, plenty of details that are actually good, in fact. But the overall product is just not it. This story is just far too all over the place and boring and silly and messy for me to maintain any degree of investment, and every time I think it might be pulling me in, it does something to drive me away again. So let's get into this, I guess. Episode 5 and 6 are both a bit shorter than the episodes that came before them. Episode 6, in particular, is the shortest episode of the series, clocking in at about 20 minutes less than the runtime of the longest episode. And of course, each of them opens with another quote. In episode 5, our quote is from Peter Pan. She lets her hands play in the hair of the tragic boy. She was not a little girl heartbroken about him. She was a grown woman smiling at it all, but they were wet smiles. The context of this quote, of course, is that it's the end of the story and some time after Wendy and Peter have parted ways. Peter has returned to her, only to discover that she is not only no longer a child, but now a mother. And so he takes her daughter, Jane, to Neverland to play the role of his child mother and maid. And when Jane grows up, he takes her daughter, Margaret, to Neverland to play mother and maid for him, too. It's honestly a horror story. Just look at the last line of the book. When Margaret grows up, she will have a daughter, who is to be Peter's mother in turn, and thus it will go on, so long as children are gay and innocent and heartless. Peter Pan can never grow up, and he rejects grown women even as he demands a mother figure, and so he lures away little girls to serve him as his mother. It is absolutely perverse, especially given the strong possibility that the author of the story may have been a pedophile himself, and the implications of referencing Peter Pan in this story are very interesting. This is, after all, our flashback episode. This is the episode that dives into and expands upon our knowledge of what happened in Emma's childhood. We see the death of Lucy, we see the reasons Emma emotionally struck out at her mother and left Eldon, and we see how the whole ordeal has well and truly left Emma in a lifelong state of arrested development, just like Peter Pan. Emma really has been Peter throughout this whole story. She's a grown woman who acts like a little boy, just the way Peter Pan as a character has been more often than not played by grown women on the stage. And she's a figure who left her childhood friends behind, only to come back into their lives to find that they've grown up and moved on, and, in Sebastian's case, become a parent to children of their own. She is an impish, childish woman who completely and utterly embodies the role of Peter Pan in this story, which makes one wonder. If Emma is Peter Pan, then who here is Wendy? Sebastian certainly seems the most likely candidate, but given that Peter Pan absconds with Wendy's daughter, what does that mean for Emma's relationship with Sebastian and his own now-missing son? If anything, I suppose we'll soon find out. As the episode begins, we find ourselves peering down into that familiar hole in the ground. This time there is a pink and purple children's rain boot lying discarded beside it. Whose this is, we cannot be sure, though Emma is of course the most likely candidate. From within the hole, Marianne whispers, and then we find Emma standing in the harsh red and blue lighting of the old lighthouse school. Everything is incredibly dreamlike, though this time it is actually a dream. But it's not Emma's dream. Not Emma as we know her, at least. Emma walks into the classroom where her friends once tried to summon Marianne, and she sees a teen girl standing behind an open door, just as Marianne does so often to scare her victims. Emma approaches this teenager and does not recognize her. She asks if this girl is Marianne, and the girl says that she's not. 
The girl, she says, is Emma Larsiman, and she asks who this adult stranger is. And adult Emma does not answer. Instead, she puts on a Marianne smile and lunges forward, choking teen Emma back into the waking world. It's a very interesting dream, especially when one considers it in the context of Emma as Peter Pan. In a certain sense, given what we learn in this episode, there is some degree of truth to the idea that teen Emma is the true Emma, and that adult Emma is Marianne's Emma. Adult Emma is who teen Emma grows to be purely because of Marianne's harassment and that terrible priest's advice. It's delightful symbolism, and again, I really do want to reiterate that I think there's a ton of stuff happening in this show that really is phenomenal. It's just that there's so much cringe and nonsense that's getting in the way of the good shit, and so I can't really properly enjoy the good stuff that is here. So, teen Emma wakes to find that her nightmare has caused her to wet the bed, and it's clear that this is an ongoing problem for her. Her mother isn't remotely surprised by the issue, and Emma doesn't even seem to hide it from her, either her friends or her family. But in the scene in which Emma talks to her mother about needing to do the laundry before school, we get a new, though perhaps obvious, look into Emma's psychology. She parrots the old stereotype, all great writers are alcoholics. It's bullshit, and it's harmful, and I enjoy the bitter implication here that Emma seems to have purposefully turned herself into an alcoholic. She wants to be a famous and masterful author, and the great writers are all alcoholics, so she turned herself into an alcohol abuser. It is delightfully tragic within the confines of fiction. Outside of fiction, of course, this definitely does happen to young creatives, so once again, please take my word for it, alcohol does not ignite, fuel, or even assist creativity. It well and truly kills it, if not right away, then definitely in the long run. You cannot drink to fuel your dreams. At the harbor, the shipwreck kids gather on the way to the school, and I want to point out here that for Emma to be as young as she is, this scene should probably be taking place sometime around 2005, and unless French fashion was wildly out of step with US fashion five years into the new millennium, these kids are not dressed right. I'm a couple of years younger than Emma is supposed to be, and believe me when I tell you that no one looked like a roar in 2005. We weren't doing mohawks in 2005, we were doing enormous bangs swooping down over one eye and those dangerously teased razor cuts. Punk was pretty much out among young teens by the time 2005 rolled around. We were doing emo and scene. But maybe they were a bit behind the times in France? Who knows? What I do know, though, is that you would never jump into the water after styling a mohawk, which is exactly what Aurora does next as the scene continues. The priest is pissed that the kids were partying at his church sometime in the recent past, and so he sicks his dog on them. And Bible Boy had better be happy that he's not in America at this point, because if he had done that in the US, someone would have fucking shot that dog, and rightfully so. The children jump into the water to avoid this dog, proving that they genuinely think they're in danger of being mauled here. Let me genuinely emphasize that if Aurora had not been truly scared of losing life or limb in this moment, she would have never ruined her hair like that. She honestly believed that she had to jump into the water to escape the dog, and yeah, that's the very rare circumstance under which I am completely alright with killing a pet. In the moment when it's chasing down a child to maul them, yeah. Fire your gun. Fire away. And afterward, throw that piece of shit preacher in prison and make sure that he's never allowed to own an animal ever again. Now, don't get me wrong, this dog is clearly even worse at pretending to be aggressive than the previous dog, Actor, was. But yeah, the show clearly wants me to understand this dog is aggressive and threatening, and so despite the fact that he's clearly not, I am operating as if he is. At the shipwreck, the kids are drawing off, which I guess means they skip school after the priest dog chased them, and Emma is telling them all about her Marianne dreams. Carolyn wants to go ahead and summon Marianne to put an end to her harassment of Emma, but Aurora isn't into it. She's scared, clearly, and though Emma tries to convince her that spirits don't actually exist, Emma is also clearly more agnostic toward their existence than outright skeptical of them. 
It's that thing of, like, spiritually hedging your bets. Emma claims not to believe in Marianne, but a part of her still thinks that summoning her to tell her to fuck off might help ease her nightmares. Mostly, though, Emma just wants to stop pissing the bed. She's been dating Tonio for three months now, apparently, and she still can't have sex with him because she's scared that if they go to sleep together, she's going to wet the bed with him lying right there beside her. And while an adult relationship should be able to handle that embarrassment, it is sure as shit going to put a damper on a teenage infatuation. Ultimately, though, the teens end up going out to the lighthouse school for their seance after all, Aurora included. They sneak in because, quote, forbidden places work the best, and they set up their ritual space in what turns out to be Aurora's little sister Lucy's classroom, the classroom wherein teen Emma dreamed about being strangled by adult Emma. When the ritual begins, Carolyn warns everyone to stay quiet and not break the ritual circle. Then she calls out to Marianne to summon her, and while nothing at first appears to happen, Emma senses Marianne enter the room. And despite Emma being the Marianne authority of the group, they don't believe her, either before or after Marianne momentarily steals her body to make her start crawling around like Regan and the Exorcist and threatening all of her friends. It's a really stupid-looking scene that isn't remotely scary, and amusingly, all of the teens except for Emma agree with me. They don't for a second believe that this was Marianne possessing Emma. They think that Emma was just being a jackass, and Aurora is by far the angriest among them. She pretty much swears off her friendship with Emma entirely, which is a truly ridiculous overreaction. She's committed to it, though, to the point that Emma feels the need to seek out Aurora's sister Lucy in hopes of getting the chance to talk to Aurora again. But Lucy is a seven-year-old and not really capable of understanding people's emotions or taking them seriously. She decides that it's time for a game with Emma instead, and she steals some little gadget that Emma's got and picks the best and worst hiding place possible. It's a freezer chest that locks from the outside when you close it. Lucy gets in, which isn't the end of the world because Emma's right on the brink of finding her within just a few seconds. But then Marianne lures Emma away with a fake vision of Lucy, who runs back into the classroom and begins to play a far worse game of cat and mouse than the real Lucy had in mind. With Lucy's creepy stuffed animal all bug-eyed and wide-mouthed, just like Marianne herself, taunting her, Emma searches for Lucy in the classroom, while Lucy herself begins to get uncomfortable in the tight confines of the coffin she's accidentally chosen for herself. But when Lucy tries to get out, she realizes that she can't. She's strong enough to lift the lid, yes, but she's not able to open the latch from the inside, and something is in there with her. We see Marianne's real face here, and it's that same bug-eyed monstrosity that we've been getting flashes of all along, and I've really gotta say, this is some silly shit. It looks like a bad Halloween mask. Truly, I need horror creators to start internalizing the notion of less is more like their lives depend on it. So, back in the classroom, an old green chalkboard, which were also long gone from schools by 2005, mind you, it flips over to reveal a horrific drawing, courtesy of the demon witch herself. It's Lucy's little corpse, all dead and frozen inside the freezer chest, and Emma immediately knows what that means. She rushes to the freezer and finds a little Lucy sickle, which is wholly impossible. Imagine being Emma in this scene. Either she just lost time and Lucy was in that freezer for hours, or something genuinely impossible just happened. Something impossible that Emma cannot explain, will blame on herself, and feels she must keep secret. Imagine sitting in that moment, trying to wrap your mind around how a little girl who was alive and warm and talking to you literally two minutes ago could have possibly died and frozen solid within that span of time. The horror and trauma of finding her corpse is bad enough without the compounding nightmare of not understanding how this could have possibly happened to her. Too young and frightened to handle all of this with the maturity one would expect from an adult, Emma leaves Lucy's corpse and flees the school still carrying Lucy's terrifying little stuffed animal. Screaming her way through a scene very indicative of this show's love of melodrama, Emma casts Lucy's toy into the sea once and for all. 
or not. As Emma lies in bed, listening to her parents discussing Lucy's lethal accident, she finds that the toy is every bit as capable of crawling out of the sea as her mother and father will be 15 years later. The damn thing is sitting on her nightstand, leering at her with that horrible smile and those awful bug eyes, and then Emma rolls over to find Lucy's specter in bed beside her. She flings herself away from the bed, throwing the blankets up into the air as she goes, and they catch on the head of a child-sized figure that unfolds to become a very much not-child-sized figure. It's a pretty well-trodden trope at this point, the ironic real ghost in a sheet, and I've definitely seen it done better before. Paranormal Activity 3 and The Conjuring both spring to mind, but it's not terrible, and I like the detail of how the reveal works here. The ghost moves towards Emma while the sheet kind of stays caught on the bed, so the figure is less and less covered by the sheet with each step, and for a brief moment, the blanket only hides the ghost face as well as a hood might. And then we're back to that silly Popeye shit. Now, onto the church. The priest is quite surprised to find Emma in his confessional booth, and he's an utter asshole about it. He must have quite a stranglehold on the populace indeed for him to have any congregation at all. He's certainly far from a kind or warm or nurturing or even forgiving figure. He's a completely unwelcoming hard-ass, and I have no idea how he thinks he's going to attract new converts. Or maybe it's just that no one ever moves to this town, so why bother trying to be kind to non-worshippers when the only non-worshippers around are the wayward children of people already in the congregation? Either way, it's very gross, and he's got some truly horrific advice for Emma once she finally works up the nerve to share the truth about Lucy's death and her troubles with Marianne. He affirms her belief that Marianne is real, and he tells her that it is entirely her problem. He won't help, and if she stays near her friends and family, Marianne will harm or kill them, with the implication that this will be Emma's fault. And so he tells Emma that she has to leave. She must, in fact, get herself ousted from the community entirely. He tells her that she must prove so awful that her parents essentially disown her. And this advice, by the way, I'm pretty sure is a crime. It's parental alienation, for one thing, and it's contributing to the delinquency of a minor, for sure. Now, I will never be surprised by a priest turning out to be a criminal, abusive, immoral asshole, but Emma has been carrying the weight of what this priest told her to do for her entire life. It has ruined her life, and this cements that this is not her fault. She comes from a society that ingrains within her moral code the idea of priests being objectively good and their advice being objectively moral and right. So when she, at 15, turned to her town's preacher in her moment of crisis and got the literal worst advice in the world, of course she obeyed him, and he hasn't suffered a bit for his bullshit while she has shouldered all the blame of what she did to both herself and her loved ones. This man encouraged her to destroy her relationships and her future because, I don't know, because he didn't fucking feel like actually trying to fight against a demon when it's easier to just bully a little girl. What an asshole. Anyway, now, the shot of Emma storming out of the church with a fire axe in hand after chopping the hat off the crucifix? That shit's fucking awesome. The shot of her typing up the hit piece on her mom is a bit sillier, given that it's gotta be 2005 and she is using a fucking typewriter. But throughout all of this, Emma's mom is still trying to reach her, really cementing her as the parent who shouldn't have died. Emma's dad was, and is, an asshole, perfectly willing to get rid of his 15-year-old daughter as soon as she starts acting out. If anyone had to die, I would have preferred it be him. But Marianne is, of course, fundamentally cruel, and so Emma's dad lives while Emma's mom gets stabbed. And Emma, the teen version of her, gets sent away to a boarding school. Despite Emma apparently being in a relationship with the other boy, Sebastian confronts her as she boards the bus to leave, and the two of them share a kiss before they go their separate ways. 
From there, Emma grew up into the woman we now know, and the narrative returns to the present wherein she is telling the whole sordid tale to Samuel. They brainstorm how to fight and hopefully kill Marianne, and Sebastian interrupts them with the news that his son has been taken. The final shot of the episode is what I suppose is meant to be this badass shot of Samuel resolving to take down Marianne, but I really just cannot take it seriously. The dialogue, as translated into English at least, is so far from badass, and after seeing that bug-eyed bitch over and over again all episode, I'm just not in the right headspace to be impressed by this dork. But let's get into the next episode. This is the shortest one of the series, which is hilarious to me given how much of its plot is just the characters metaphorically treading water. And speaking of water, the episode opens with a quote from Edgar Allan Poe's Annabelle Lee. Like the previous episode using the end of Peter Pan, this too is the end of Poe's poem. The show only includes the last four lines, but I will go ahead and read the whole final stanza for you now. For the moon never beams without bringing me dreams of the beautiful Annabelle Lee, and the stars never rise, but I feel the bright eyes of the beautiful Annabelle Lee. And so, all the night tide, I lie down by the side of my darling, my darling, my life and my bride, and her sepulchre there by the sea, and her tomb by the sounding sea. Now, you'll forgive me if this is a stupid suggestion, but surely this poem is being used here in reference to Marianne herself? She has been consistently associated with the lighthouse and the sea, and she's certainly the primary haunter of dreams in this show. So, perhaps because I am a woefully literal person, I am kind of interpreting Marianne as Annabelle Lee and the lighthouse as the sepulchre. So, who is the narrator? Not Belleth, surely, nor Emma. So, how should I properly be interpreting this? Perhaps Sebastian is about to die in the lighthouse? That could easily fit with the rest of the poem if Sebastian is to be cast as Annabelle Lee and Emma as the narrator, or vice versa. Other than that, though, I'm at a loss. So, when the episode itself actually starts, we find that Samuel has been combing through Emma's Lizzie Lark books. According to him, there is a whole history of Emma writing things into reality, which is something I thought we had already established a few episodes ago, but okay. All around the world, there are real crimes that exactly match demon-influenced crimes Emma wrote about, which conveniently gives Emma one more guilt to take onto her shoulders and one more shame to drink away. Samuel tries to comfort her, and it's here that I decided I wouldn't mind too terribly if Samuel ended up being Emma's love interest after all. Which of course means that he dies at the end of this episode. And given that he remains the only character I find even sort of interesting, I'm not optimistic about my chances of enjoying these last two episodes. Samuel and Sebastian, though, are two sides of the coin for Emma in this scene. Samuel tells Emma that the right thing to do is never right again, which is odd, considering that it seems to operate under the assumption that either Marianne cannot be defeated, or Emma's powers, such as they are, exist independently of Marianne. Meanwhile, Sebastian posits that the exact opposite is the right move. Emma should simply try to write Marianne out of existence, write a death scene for Marianne, and maybe Marianne will die. It's worth trying, honestly, but they have this whole debate about whether it's going to work and why it might or might not. Samuel says that this isn't like a genie's lamp, with Emma being able to just wish whatever she wants into existence, but if I would have been there, I would have said that it's probably exactly like a genie's lamp in the be careful what you wish for sense of things. Try it, sure, but be prepared for the awful consequences. If you write a scene of Marianne being dismembered as Sebastian suggests Emma do, that could mean Marianne actually dies from dismemberment, or it could be an excuse to grant you the absolute worst version of that desire, which I think should be obvious. Marianne would possess Sebastian's son, and Marianne would be dismembered in the sense of possessing Sebastian's son as the baby is ripped limb from limb. That is the monkey's paw version of that idea. 
But it's not the route that the show goes, perhaps because it intends to restore Sebastian's son at some point. Instead of Emma getting what she wants or getting some twisted version instead, her attempt to bury Marianne alive, Edgar Allan Poe style, results in her being plunged into a Marianne dream very reminiscent of Patrick Wilson's sojourn into the further in Insidious. It's almost identical from the lighting to the music to the movement and expressions of the actors. This place is plunged into a kind of blue-tinged darkness with a very Insidious-esque lingering scare chord, as Samuel and Sebastian jerkily turn toward Emma and break into these horrible Marianne smiles. If you don't know what I'm talking about, go look up the insidious doll girl scene and see what I'm talking about. The two scenes are pretty much exactly the same, right down to using almost the exact same music. And then, Emma turns to find Carolyn's mother's crow sitting atop her computer, and the crow lunges forward to pluck out Emma's eyes. And Emma wakes to find that she's written a bit about crows tearing up her face in her attempt at a death scene for Marianne. The boys say that she just suddenly slumped over at her keyboard, and the plan is resoundingly abandoned. Instead, they're off to the lighthouse instead. Emma insists that Sebastian shouldn't come along, and for once, she's right, though she's a complete fucking jackass about it. She begs a kiss from Sebastian and pulls the old go in for a kiss on the cheek and quickly turn your head so it turns into a kiss on the lips trick, which, fun fact, is an assault. Sebastian explicitly and repeatedly told her that he did not want to kiss her on the mouth, and apparently no one ever told Emma that no means goddamn no. As sympathetic as I find Emma's trauma and maladaptive coping mechanisms, Boy, does she fucking suck. So Sebastian heads back to his wife and his stepson for just long enough to gather the rest of the shipwreck gang. Aurora's there because she's seen visions of her murdered sister. Arnaud is there because Tonio is missing. And Sebastian is apparently willing to risk his life for his child's rather than comfort his postpartum mourning wife or take care of his recently mind-raped-into-a-suicide attempt stepson. Emma explains to Samuel that once they're on the island for the night, they're going to be trapped there. It's automated, so there's no one else there, and there's no way off unless you bring your own boat, which they're not doing. So anyone who goes over there had better accept the reality that they will have to survive the entire night, and that they may never make it back. It's when they're on the island, though, that Emma reveals the awful thing she's done. Somehow she has managed to abduct the priest's supposedly vicious dog, and it's muzzled in the trunk of her car. She claims that they're not going to hurt it, but look at the way that poor boy's eyes are bugging and his ears are pulled back. That dog is not convincingly vicious, but he is convincingly frightened in this scene. Someone help that poor baby. But no, they're not going to help him. Instead, Samuel and Emma and the rest of these idiots are going to trap Marianne inside his body, which is honestly just fucking evil. And if something happens to this dog, I will be entirely done trying to give this show the benefit of the doubt. Before we move on to the attempt at a summoning, though, we get this weird little moment that I kind of think is just Alban Lemoir showing off. Samuel changes his shirt for this lingering shot of a silly-ass Ouija board tattoo on his upper back, and it is the dorkiest shit I've ever seen, and I cannot decide if I think this is cringy or charming. Not that it matters, Samuel makes it pretty clear that he considers this silly tattoo a relic of a bygone era and that he's a good Christian boy now, and boo hiss to that. Again, though, it seems like this that almost had me on board with the idea of Emma and Samuel, right in time for Samuel to blow his own fucking brains out, but we'll get there. The gang sets up their silly little seance space, and Samuel calls out to Marianne, demanding that she show up. How he intends to put Marianne into the dog, I have no idea, and it's not like he's got any real idea of what he's doing either, because he fucks it up just about as badly as he possibly could. Because unlike what he tells his newfound friends, Marianne does not fail to appear. She instead shows up and possesses Samuel himself. 
I should have known what was up, honestly. I did think Samuel was acting strangely. Giving up so easily is super silly, as is the idea that Marianne could simply ignore the whole true names have power thing. And Samuel's beseeching Jehovah to make her submit. The logic just doesn't follow. Either giving her true name gives you power over her, or it doesn't. Why, if her name grants you power, would she be able to resist appearing? And of course, she didn't resist. But while I had assumed Samuel was just being handed the idiot ball here, it turned out to be much more sinister than that. Samuel was not being stupid. Samuel was Marianne. But the shipwreck gang is completely taken in by this lie. They all disperse, many of them afraid to be anywhere near the preacher's dog, and so the dog gets locked in a side building while Aurora and Arnaud hole up in the car and Emma, Samuel, and Sebastian try to sleep in the classroom. And now it's time for an unnecessary flashback. Cut to the previous night for a bit of clarity regarding what exactly happened to Sebastian's son. The woman that took him, as I suspected, was Camille, who was possessed by Marianne and merrily scaring the shit out of Emma's father. The scene of Camille intubating herself is so upsetting and very effective B-movie-style horror. Cut to the next night, when Samuel is trying to summon Marianne on the lighthouse island, and the nurse is trying to help Emma's father. Marianne Camille, Camillianne, if you will, creeps up behind the nurse with that damn smile and another huge knife, murder in her heart. But she doesn't have time for any stabbing because she's called away by Samuel's successful summoning. Cut back to the island for the single most useless scene in the show so far. Show of hands, who the fuck cares about Aurora's romantic feelings for Arnaud? Anyone? Anyone? Especially when her confession takes over five minutes and culminates in a pretty firm rejection. Like, seriously, who fucking cares? Why did I have to watch that? In the shortest episode of the entire damn season, why were five entire minutes wasted on this romantic plot tumor? It's just awful. Anyway, Aurora wanders off heartbroken and discovers that the dog has been released from both his muzzle and his chain. If he's smart, he will be swimming back to the mainland right about now. But back in the classroom, Samuel is contemplating his anti-demon amulet thing when one of his little temperature alarms goes off, hinting that perhaps Marianne has entered the room. He uses a little handheld mirror to see Marianne lurking in the dark behind him, and then Aurora and Arnaud burst in. Samuel realizes now that Marianne has been there all along. His attempt at summoning her worked after all, and she's just been pretending otherwise. He says that Marianne must be possessing one of them, and that surely Marianne is the one who let the dog loose. Then he pulls out his gun, announces that he knows who Marianne possessed, himself, and blows his own goddamn brains out. Adieu, Samuel, I suppose. There goes the closest thing I've got to a favorite character. I am so over this show, you guys. So, with that recap finished, I am not loving this, in case you couldn't tell. I'm looking forward to the final two episodes insofar as I'm looking forward to being done with this show. And at this point, I don't really know how I'm going to feel about the show overall once I've finished it. The final two episodes might turn things around for me, and it's also entirely possible that maybe a month or two from now, once I've started forgetting the finer details of what I didn't like about the show, I may begin to look fondly back on the parts of it that I did enjoy. Perhaps once I've gotten some distance from the initial viewing experience, it will be a more enjoyable story in my memory when seen through the haze of recollection. But like I said, as it stands right now, I'm not loving this. I'm not even really liking it. I don't know if I want to go so far as to say that it's like bad in a don't bother watching it kind of way. If it hits your preferred tropes, yes, you should give it a go. If you're very easily frightened, yeah, sure, give it a go. But if you're a horror aficionado, if you have high standards when it comes to horror, if you can't handle the silliness and the cringe and the total inconsistencies and some of the less great acting here, then I would say you should probably skip this one. As always, I intend to pass no concrete judgment on the series until I hit the end, but right now, I don't expect my opinions to change unless these two final episodes are completely phenomenal and put all of their six predecessors to absolute shame. I will hold out hope, just in case, but I'm not expecting it.
So now, with all of that said, I'm going to be back in one week's time with my coverage of the penultimate and final episodes of this show. And in the meantime, you may be interested in checking out my Patreon, where for $1 per month, you get access to my various polls, helping me determine what it is that you guys would most like me to watch next. Alternately, on the $5 tier, you can get access to full-length, unedited, or minimally edited reaction videos of everything that I've covered for the podcast, plus a whole host of other things, including Midnight Mass, Squid Game, Bly Manor, Unbreakable Kimmy Schmidt, Umbrella Academy, and more. As always, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you will join me again next week for my coverage of the end of Marianne. And, in Sebastian's case, become a parent to ch children. What are children?